It has been said that life can be summarized as an endless series of decisions punctuated by numerous choices. We make decisions every day, right? Every, we, we make them unconsciously, we make them sometimes arguously, sometimes we're uh, agonizing over them. But decisions are a major part of our day. And so we want to understand how to make good decisions and why it is that sometimes we don't make them. Gary Meadows, in his book, Decision Making God's Way, uh, says that because of the fall, because of Adam's sin and our uh, sinful uh, nature, even as believers, that our minds distort our view of God and His will for our lives, which requires a transformation of our mind, referencing Romans 12, 1 and 2. Of course, I would heartily agree with that. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, Just Do Something, argues that millennials, if you fit into that category, have a much harder time making decisions than their grandparents or their parents. Calls the grandparents um, the building generation, the parents the booming generation, and the uh, millennial generation the tinkering generation. Um, basically, he argues because... Um, Young people are maturing later in life. They have more trouble making decisions. In his book, if you fit into that category, that's a good read for you. This morning, I'm going to try to answer these questions and maybe a few more. How do we determine if we're making decisions within God's will? Is every method in the Bible used for making decisions uh, applicable, applicable for us today? For that matter, how do we determine what God's will is? And does God have more than one kind of will? And what about making decisions in the gray area, where the Bible is not explicit? So I'm going to be building an argument. You may want me to rush to the end and deal with the gray areas, but we've got to cover a few things before we get there. Many Christians today use the Bible incorrectly for making decisions. Bruce Walke, in his book, Finding the Will of God, with a subtitle of A Pagan Notion, argues that many Christians make decisions in a very subjective manner, believing that they are using biblical methods. Because they're using methods mostly found in the Old Testament. Now, what kind of methods do we find in the Old Testament? Well, from Adam and Eve, practically uh, up until the 400 years of silence prior to the New Testament, God spoke audibly to many saints and prophets. Even in the New Testament, we find... Um, in Luke chapter 1, Gabriel speaking to Zacharias about the birth of John. In the same chapter, Gabriel also spoke to Mary about 
the Christ child. We could even go into Acts 9, um, when uh, Christ, who had already ascended into heaven, spoke to Saul on the road to Damascus. And so uh, some people would take those references and assume that they're going to hear an audible voice from the Lord. In fact, uh, uh, I taught this class uh, a few weeks ago, portions of this, and I said that God doesn't speak audibly to us today since he's completed his uh, Bible, which is how he speaks to us. And I was confronted by a woman after that that said God speaks to her all the time. So uh, there are people out there that think they hear audible voices from the Lord. And as John MacArthur says, if you're hearing audible voices in your mind, how do you know they're from God? They could be from anywhere, including Satan. So we do not look for voices uh, from God. He has spoken. His, um, his scriptures, his canon is complete. I'm sure that no one is pulling out their Urim and their Thurim used by Aaron and the high priests. They, in fact, uh, scholars are not even sure what they are or what they did but somehow they attached to Aaron's breastplate and gave him instructions on how to lead uh, the Israelites. How about casting lots? I, uh, probably akin to rolling dice or flipping a coin. Many times in the Old Testament, uh, it talks about casting lots in the lap. And in Acts 1.26, the last time that it is used in Scripture, the 11 disciples chose Matthias to replace Judas by drawing lots. So you've, you picture maybe somebody pulling the short straw. I don't know if legally California you can draw straws <laughs> anymore, but... You get the idea. It's a, it's a chance. But of course, in the Old Testament, before the canon was finished, God used methods like that to give direction to his people if they were relying on him and not chance. Of course, there were many dreams in the Old Testament. Uh, Daniel, uh, given many dreams that uh, came true about eschatology, but uh, we should not rely on dreams today because we have a dream about something. We shouldn't wake up and determine that God has given us direction. And signs. Of course, uh, we're talking about Moses and the burning bush as well as many other signs that were given in the Old Testament. Included in signs would be Fleeces. How many times have you heard someone say, not sure about this decision, they're going to throw out a fleece? I've heard that. I think maybe you've heard it too. Well, let's find out if that's even feasible or why we should even be doing that. We would look at Judges chapter 6 and 7 and find out that the Lord told Gideon exactly what he wanted him to do. There was no ambiguity about it. There was no question about it. Uh, he didn't need any direction. 
he told him to go to battle, and he was concerned, he was afraid, he wanted confirmation. And so he flew out the, threw out the proverbial fleece, which make the fleece wet and the ground dry, and the ground wet and the fleece dry, uh, just to confirm that the Lord was give, that it was the Lord giving him that direction, and in fact, that's what he wanted him to do. So in fact, if we look at that passage, um, Gideon was questioning God's clear direction. He, he, wasn't, uh, uh, he wasn't being obedient. Uh, he was looking for confirmation, questioning whether God really wanted him to do that. So fleeces are not a biblical method either. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm okay with this decision because I have a peace about it? I have a peace about it, right? I'm not bothered by this decision. I have a real peace. Well, when God told Jonah to go to Nineveh to evangelize, Jonah knew that God was faithful and gracious, and he was going to save people in Nineveh, but he hated Nineveh. And so he got on a boat going the opposite direction. He had such a peace about his decision, he was asleep in the bottom of the ship. (laughs) Until the Lord drew a giant storm then how did they determine who was at fault? They cast lots. And the lot fell to Jonah, and God created a huge fish to swallow Jonah and swim him to Nineveh and spit him out on the shores of Nineveh. So having a peace about something, particularly with our fallen minds and our selfishness, is not a way to make decisions. Of course, now in the New Testament era, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have a completed canon, and there are clear New Testament passages of what God's will is for our life. Romans 12.2 says that he wants us to know his word. First Thessalonians 4.3 says that he wants us to live holy lives. First Thessalonians 5.16 says that we are to be joyful. First Thessalonians 5.17 says that we are to pray faithfully. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says that we are to be thankful. Ephesians 5.15-17 says that we are to walk in the Spirit. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that we are to evangelize. 1 Peter 2.13-17 says we are to be submissive to authority. And 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17 says, we are to expect sufferings in this lifetime. 
1 Peter 4.12 says that we are to endure and persevere in our faith. Now, what do all those things have in common? They are moral directions for our lives. They are God's will for us regarding moral choices. Just to back up to Romans 12, I mentioned earlier, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and a holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So from that passage, we understand that the world around us is trying to conform us to its morals and its uh, its morals and its practices, and in order to fight against that, we have to renew our minds to think biblically with scriptures, with scriptures like the ones I just read. We have to understand that if we are not in God's word, if we are not renewing our minds, we will be conformed to the world, and we will not be making good moral decisions. Uh, John MacArthur's little book, uh, Found God's Will, I think is its present title. It's had a number of titles. It's, uh, we've printed millions of them. It's actually, if I remember correctly, it's actually a message that he gave while he was um, doing recruiting for Talbot Seminary prior to becoming the pastor here. And uh, it has been, as I said, printed in a little booklet. And the essence of the book says, if you're walking in the Spirit, if you're doing all these things, if you're saved and sanctified and suffering and serving and uh, waiting for the Lord, etc., then do whatever you want. Augustine said it this way, love God and do whatever you want. So there you go, that's the essence of today's lesson. <laughs> so if we're obeying God's word, we're walking in the Spirit, we're guided by the Spirit, then our moral decisions that we make are going to be within God's will because we're using God's word to um, make those decisions. So the Bible is not going to give us direct answers to all of our questions, but His Word allows us to build a biblical worldview that will help us make good decisions. Let's look a couple of these verses up here before we move on.
1 Thessalonians. I mentioned a few of them in that book. Verses 4, I'll begin in verse 1 down to 3. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord that you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as actually you do walk, that you excel still more. For you know that commandments we have given you by the authority of the Lord Jesus For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So again, when we're looking for God's will, we have to go no further than the passages that clearly state this is God's will for your life. There's no ambiguity about that. Verses 16 and 17 say, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. 18 says, And everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Clear, clearly, uh, exhortation on what God's will is for our lives. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, but for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Clear enough, right? First Timothy two four. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So he desires us to be knowledgeable of the truth. And a couple from First Peter here, and then we'll continue on here. Chapter 2, verses 13 of First Peter. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake for every human institution, whether to a king or to one in authority, to govern uh, governors as set by him for the punishment of evildoers, and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that you do right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. God is not ambiguous when it comes to what his will is, at least as far as our moral life. Chapter 3, 13, beginning in 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? For even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify 
Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Keep a good conscience so that in things in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will put to shame, will be put to shame for. It is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So there, there may be a time, there will be a time, if you're a true Christian, suffering will enter into your life for your sanctification. And finally, 1 Peter 4, 2, 1 through 2, I should say. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. There's God's will once again. So, It is clear then, in Scripture, exactly what God's will is for us regarding His moral will in our lives. There's no ambiguity there. There's no question about it. And let's think for a minute, does God have only one type of will? And before I answer that question, I would say in His mind, He only has one kind of will. But in our very finite minds, theologians and others have tried to um, categorize the different types of will that we see in Scripture to help us understand um, the difference between his moral will and, let's say, his sovereign will. He wills that we live godly lives. Now, part of that is up to us, right? Our sanctification is up to us. When it comes to his sovereign will, he is sovereign over all things. When he determines something is going to happen, it's going to happen. He will make it happen the way he determined it to happen. That's the reason that he could write, have the Apostle John write through the Holy Spirit, the epistle of Revelation, which is yet to happen, because he has determined sovereignly that that will happen. We can only know God's decreed or sovereign will if it's revealed in Scripture, like the passages talking about the end times in Daniel and Revelation and other passages, if he gives us insight into those, or... We can look at our lives or the events of our lives in hindsight and say, God sovereignly allowed or caused that to happen in our lives for us, for our benefit. That's the only time we can know for sure God's sovereign will is if it's recorded in Scripture or if we're looking at it in hindsight. For instance, answered prayer. We look at the prayer requests that we have made, that we have beseeched the Lord for, and as we see those prayers answered, or perhaps not answered, we can say God sovereignly has chosen 
to answer that prayer or not to answer that prayer for our benefits. Another one, another way to look at God's will is his permissive will. And in the same way his sovereign will determines what will happen, nothing happens that God doesn't permit. Let's think about when David decided to number Israel. It's recorded twice in Scripture. In 1 Chronicles 21.1, it says, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. The exact same account is recorded in 2 Samuel 24.1, which states, Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. So how do we, how do we match those two? That's the same account. In one verse, Satan is moving David to number Israel, which, by the way, that was a sin because it was relying on the size of the army as his strength rather than relying on the Lord. So the whole, you understand that his decision to number Israel was evil. It was sinful. And yet Satan didn't have that power without God permitting it. And so 2 Samuel 21 tells us that it was God who was angry at Israel for their disobedience and burned against them, who incited David to go number Israel. Now we see a similar situation in Job. Uh, the accounts in Job chapters 1 and 2, Satan comes before God to report to him. It's the only picture we have of this type of event going on in heaven. Satan comes with the angels before God and it wasn't Satan, but it was God said, have you considered my servant Job? And of course, you know the story. Satan said, well, he only worships you because he has all of these things you gave him, all these children and cattle and possessions. And so God allowed Satan to take those away from him. Then the same event happened again. He came before God again, and God says again, have you considered my servant Job? Because Job had not cursed God. And so he allowed him then to inflict Job with painful sores, head to foot, 
And uh, Job still did not curse God. On top of it all, the only relative that God left Job was his wife, who said, curse God and die. So she was of no help at all. Now, what we have to understand here is God is allowing Job to inflict pain on Job for God's purposes, because nowhere in the Scripture does it tell us that Job is ever aware of why all these things happened and what, uh, why God was allowing it, what the purpose of it was, and how it all came about. He never knows. In fact, in the end, when he's questioning God, God essentially says, well, who are you to question um, what I have determined to happen? And so we have to understand that God permits even you know, pretty horrific things to happen to someone like Job for his purposes. And sometimes, uh, therefore, our growth and our understanding and our strengthening, but in Job's case, he never knew. He was not let in on that. And we have to understand that that's a part of God's will also. Now, some theologians will use different terminology or even different categories, and as I said before, I think uh, in God's infinite mind, he only has one will. But it's difficult for us to understand how his moral will, his sovereign will, and his permissive will all mingle together. But uh, I believe they do. These are just categories to help us understand what's going on here. So, where does this leave us if we want to make non-moral decisions and we're still concerned about whether they're within God's will or not. Gary Friesen, in his book, Decision-Making and the Will of God, which we were just, just talking to a gentleman before we started, I think was written in the 70s, is in its 25th or 30th edition. It's about so thick. Um, it's, a, it's a good read. If you're, if you're interested in such a thing. One of his key arguments is that for many years, people believed there was only one choice, one decision that they could make that was in God's, the center of God's perfect will for their life. And if they made the wrong decision, then they would have missed God's will for their lives. This is a, 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 a horrible way to have to live, right? You're not given instructions on what God's will is in this non-moral area, and this comes up most often uh, in marriage. Anybody spend any time around young folks or people wanting to get married, the number one question is, how do I know he or she is the one? Because out of the billions of people on earth, there's only one God has choice for me, and I've got to find that one. Man, that is, a, that is a terrorizing way to go through life. We have, we have some freedom there, folks. 
Many people believe that there is only one perfect will, one choice. In his book, he does, um, he does a little case study of a young man from his church that comes back from college. Of course, he's met a girl, and he's wondering, uh, you know, is she the one that I should marry? Or if I marry her, am I going to ruin my life? The rest of my life will be ruined because I missed God's perfect will. And he's looking for some sign. Maybe he's throwing out fleeces or waiting for some kind of uh, peace about it. Do I have a peace about it? Or I'm somewhere I missed the open door. I forgot about the open door. You hear people say, well, I'm not sure if I should take this job. I'm waiting for an open door. The only time the open door is used in Scripture is when Paul says he's waiting for an open door to share the gospel. So... If you're waiting for an open door, you're just waiting for an opportunity to share the gospel. You're not looking for an opportunity to change your job in a biblical sense. We gotta, these terms that people use when they believe they're making uh, biblical decisions are very often extremely subjective and not based on Scripture. In the same way, Many, many people fall into legalism because it's much easier to live by a list of do's and don'ts than it is to live within the freedom that we are given within God's um, moral will for our lives. We have freedom. You know, you are not going to miss God's will for your life if you buy the blue car instead of the red car because there's only one uh, that the Lord wants you to have. No, that's not the way it works. We have freedom, and freedom can be scary. Let's face it. It can be very scary. So, we're at the, we're at the section here where many of you probably uh, are waiting for. If the Bible does not give us direct addresses to non-moral situations, how do we determine your freedom within God's will? And the answer is by running your situation, your question, your decision through a biblical grid or a biblical worldview. And I'll say at the outset when I was preparing this, um, I realized that there needs to be a whole other series on using the book of Proverbs for wise decision-making. And, I, and I have, we don't have time to even get into that, but that is a wisdom book full of very wise advice for anyone. So let me just say that I'm, I'm not unaware of that. I'm just unaware we don't have time to get into that today. So we're going to look at 10 10 uh, different questions we should ask about decisions we're about to make. Number one, will it be spiritually profitable? 1 Corinthians 6.12 begins, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. It may be lawful for you, to make a decision not against God's moral will, not evil or sinful, 
but is it profitable? Is it spiritually profitable? Is it to your advantage or not? Number two, will it build me up? 1 Corinthians 10.23 says, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Backing up to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 25-27, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control over all things, They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not to withhold aim. I box in such a way as not to beat the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Will it build me up? Is it something that is going to help me live a Christian life to make decisions that are morally right, that are biblical? Or is it going to enslave me? Is it going to slow me down in the race? Is it going to be a burden? Is it going to be a drag? Which leads into number three, will or could it slow me down in the race? Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now you understand um, people who race, uh, long-distance runners, etc., put on the lightest jogging shorts they can find so that they do not encumber them in their race. They're not wearing sweatpants or heavy backpacks. You understand the idea. They are getting rid of any encumbrance that could slow them down. And by the way, when in this particular passage, this encumbrance he's talking about is not sin. And that's a different situation. If there's sin in your life slowing you down, that there are other passages to deal with that. In this case, he's just talking about the choices that you've made Uh, the things that you're hanging on to, the encumbrances in your life, are they slowing you down? You may want to ask yourself, is this something that I need? Will it become a burden? Number four, does this have the potential to dominate me. 1 Corinthians 6, 12, the second half of that verse says, all things are lawful to me, but I will not be enslaved, or some uh, 
texts read, mastered by any. I will not be enslaved or mastered by anything. So, you know, in today's world, uh, we don't talk about the same encumbrances Paul did, but we can talk about smartphones and Facebook and uh, someone uh, spoke in college not that long ago and put a program on his smartphone that told him how many times he accessed it a day. And it shocked him, right, at the end of the day, how many times he'd checked uh, to see if someone had sent him a text or a tweet or what time it was or... I mean, I remember when there weren't even pages, pagers around, that that was a huge... You didn't have to pull off the side of the road and and uh, find a phone booth with a uh, with a pager. Now you just uh, now you're you're never alone. And now we know Big Brother's listening. You know how can uh, how can these devices that respond when you talk to them respond unless they're listening to everything you're saying? Think about it. So will it dominate me? Will it potentially dominate me? Will it enslave me, master me? Number five, will it hypocritically cover my sin? 1 Peter 2, 15 through 16 says, For such is the will of God that by doing right you silence the ignorance of foolish men, act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. So you understand the the passage, we do have freedom, we're given freedom. Uh, We do not live by a series of do's and don'ts, you know, what was the... uh, Bob Jones' method, don't smoke or chew or go with girls or do. This is, this is not a list of do's or don'ts. This is freedom to make choices within uh, the framework of God's moral will and with directions that he gives in other passages of things we should consider. But don't use that freedom to entertain sin in your life. Don't diminish your testimony with your freedom. Number six, and one we should uh, think about more often than we probably do, will it cause your brother to stumble? Will it cause your brother to stumble? 1 Corinthians 8, 9 through 11 Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in idols' temples, will this will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined 
the brother for whose sake Christ died. You get the idea that uh, Paul, being uh, strong in faith, understands that idols are nothing, food sacrificed to idols is nothing, no issue eating food. If I can buy it at a discount price because it sat in front of an idol for a few hours, I'm fine to eat it. However, his weaker brother who just came to the Lord and came out of that pagan religion and, and was enslaved by it couldn't think of eating meat offered to idols. It would destroy his faith. In the same way, I mean, we need to be cautious of uh, our weaker brothers and sisters around us. Now, maybe we have freedom and true freedom, uh, not a sinful issue at all. We are in control of the decisions we make. We understand the scriptural references. We are not um, enslaved by these things. But for a weaker brother or sister, we choose not to indulge or to take part in that because we don't want to cause them to stumble to grieve or to devastate their faith. Never force someone to violate their conscience. There may be times when you need to educate someone to biblically inform their conscience so that their decisions they're making through their conscience are biblical and not unbiblical. But you never want to train them to ignore it, even if they're wrong. You don't say, oh, ignore that. That's, that's not, uh, you don't have to worry about that because they get, then they get into the habit of ignoring the warning system God is giving them uh, to not sin. Now, that's not to say that their conscience may be overly sensitive or, or concerned about things that are not biblical and that you may need to help them understand that, to train them, to encourage them in, in, in the, to biblically um, set their conscience towards the things of the Lord, to this biblical worldview that they're making their decisions within but again, never force them to violate their conscience. Number seven, will it set the best example for others? Romans 14.20, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Again, this is the same idea. In fact, the entire uh, chapter 14 of Romans deals with the weaker brother, the stronger brother, and how to, how to um, prefer the weaker brother and not offend him. Number eight, will it help me lead others to Christ? Will this decision I'm making help me lead others to Christ? Or you could turn that around the other way. Will it hinder my testimony to represent Christ? 
in the same fashion. Will it keep me, uh, or excuse me, will it help me to be more Christ-like? Referencing Romans 6, where he is struggling What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through the baptism into death so that as Christ is raised, from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. So we don't want we want to make sure that these decisions we make we want to consider, is it going to help me become more Christ-like? And finally, number ten, will it exalt Christ? Will it exalt Christ? First Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever then, uh, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of Christ. Give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also pleased all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Let me pray, and I'll take some questions. If you have any, we have a few minutes, or um, essentially you can be dismissed if you need to. Father, we're so grateful for your word, so grateful that it gives us instructions on how to make wise decisions and in some cases uh, how we should um, make sure that we're interpreting the passages we're looking at properly for for this uh, this age, the age of uh, the Holy Spirit living with inside of us with the canon of Scripture, and um, not look to some Old Testament passages as uh, viable for today. Thank you for your uh, instruction, the light unto our path. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.